This morning's scripture reading is from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 7, verses 6 to 9, and verses 25 to 38. First, we'll read verses 6 to 9. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of a kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widow, widows, I say, that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. 1 Corinthians seven twenty-five to 38 Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give you my judgment as one who by the Lord, Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if he is, his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well. And who, he who refrains from marriage will do even better. This is God's Word. You're single, you're Christian, and you're looking for a meaningful relationship. Find God's match for you at ChristianMingle.com. It's easy and it's free. Start browsing millions of profiles on the leading site for Christian dating. If you're hoping to build a Christ-centered relationship, log on to ChristianMingle.com today. Sometimes we wait for God to make the next move. When God is saying, it's your time to act, the next move is yours. Join free now at ChristianMingle.com. I have publicly teased ChristianMingle.com in the past for their six seconds of theology of single-seeking spouses, but I'm going to refrain today because I've actually come around a bit to agree that what they're saying is pretty close even to what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 7, as complex as it is, God, as the great initiator, does act first, but sometimes he is saying, hey, Jim, Bobby, Sally, it's your turn to respond. The next move is yours. So, in this, our second Sunday in this complex passage, aimed to assist those of us who are single 
Christian Mingle does a pretty decent job of addressing one of our major questions this morning that we will need to address, and this passage kind of gets at, and that is this, how do I know if it's a time for waiting or a time for seeking in my life? A time for waiting on a spouse or is it a time for seeking one? We'll also deal with this interesting question that you may have uh, passed over, you may have kind of perked your ears a little about married people who ought to live like they're not married, which is not advocating the so-called swinger lifestyle, um, but, but needs a little explaining. So we'll do that, uh, and what we're going to see is there should be, in a sense, a singleness about all of us who know and love Jesus. So I hope we see that this morning. First, let me try my best to briefly recap what I addressed last week. Of course, you can do this best by going and, and podcasting and listening to it online, but There are are four big things the Apostle Paul, I think, is trying to get across in this lengthy passage, yet only real teaching on singleness, either as a seasonal calling or a life calling. First of all, it's this. There is grace for hard counsel. There is grace to motivate you for what is sometimes hard to accept. Singleness has benefits. Thirdly, when a spouse should should actively be sought. And fourthly, there ought to be a singleness about all of us who love or want to love Jesus with all our heart. So let me review, if, we, if I can do a last week recap, the first two. First of all, Paul connects in this passage every piece of counsel that he gives back to the gospel. So he says something hard, and he says, but look how it goes back to what Jesus has done for us. All of this is for your good, flowing from the ultimate good of Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross through me the apostle, to you. So, yes, it's difficult to hear. Yes, some of these things are complex, but know that every piece of advice that I give you is for your good. Because there are false teachers in the church of Corinth, as we remember last week, who are trying to say, hey, if you obey this little law, and this little law, and this little law, along with faith in Jesus, you get more of God. It's kind of like semi-magic. If you just do a little of this, and a little of that, and pray a little of this kind of prayer, You'll get more of Jesus. And one of those little special laws is practicing celibacy. Not engaging in sex. Even, these teachers are saying, if you're married. It's almost like they're saying, just to be safe, you married people, you also don't engage in sex. And Paul's like, heck no. Don't listen to that. Paul recognizes the calling to singleness, which is often gifted by celibacy, is good. But not because it's some calling it a divine law. It's not. Laws do this and don't do that. Only condemn. They don't change people. Grace changes people. I mean, think about this from your own life. We know this. For whom will you change? For whom will you bend and be flexible for? Is it for that significant person in your life who monitors you with a checklist of do's and don'ts? Maybe you've had that kind of relationship where you always feel like someone's over your shoulder saying, you shouldn't do this, but go ahead and do that. Ooh, yeah, that kind of, that kind of relationship. Or is it, are you willing to change for the person who he just unconditionally gives to you? They give generously without asking anything in return. So you just want to be like, wow, I, I want to actually please that person. I want to actually give back to that person. We know it's the latter from our lives. And that is how God motivates us. And Paul knows that. So with every piece of advice he gives for singles, attached to it is grace. I'm not making you 
but here's what's best for you. That's what I'm holding out to you here. And make no mistake, there are, are clear benefits to either a single, sorry, a season of singleness or a life of singleness. There's a giftedness to it. There's a calling to being single. There is a purpose, a divine one for being single. If your father calls you to be single, remain in, in that calling until he clearly calls you out. In the same way that we say a missionary is a calling, or to be a nurse, or to be a teacher, to be a fireman, whatever it might be, to be a pastor is a calling. So also, Paul says here, singleness is a calling. And it has a great purpose to it. Maximum kingdom effectiveness. Not to mention enabling the whole church, the whole body to function as it should. People who are called to singleness absolutely enable that. To this order that he talks about here in this passage. Finally, we see that such are supernaturally gifted to live for the calling and to live purposefully without, distracted, without distraction. So you get the supernatural gift to empower you to live what might otherwise be difficult to do. Let me say a couple things about that charisma, that spiritual gift. Gifts seen biblically are not always permanent. A lot of them are. So for example, God may give you the gift of, of, of teaching, of encouragement, of helps, of service. And that might be a lifelong gift, but occasionally God gives gifts for the season of life to which He has called you. And that could also mean celibacy. Gifts aren't always permanent. Celibacy is a supernatural ability to find self-satisfaction elsewhere than sex. than the act of sexual intimacy. Some are called to that. It is clear that the normal pattern of life is not that. It is not good for a man to be alone, the Bible says, but there are some who are supernaturally gifted to be alone so they can be maximally effective for the king and for the kingdom. Gifts from God heighten your ability to serve Him without diminishing, though, your capacity for joy. I know when you hear celibacy, you think a number of things, which include being a monk, being a, a, a nun, or wearing a chastity belt your entire life. That is not what God means. It is a gift. If God has graciously gifted you with celibacy, you can still go out on Friday nights. You can still be attracted to the opposite gender. You can still even show interest. And it's even better for you or for them with the gift of celibacy because you can do all these things without the temptation of sleeping with them. Think about it. You can still be attracted to them. You can still pursue them. You can still ask them to go out on dates. You can still talk to them. But you're not tempted to sleep with them because of this supernatural gift. How great is that for you and for them? and to stay pure for God. It is amazing. And if it's the Father's will, you can trust He will release this gift if He calls you out of that season of life. Either way, it is for your good because He is a good Father and knows how to give good gifts. That was last week, but we want to keep moving through this passage. So let me do so. And the question comes up here, when should I wait and when should I seek a spouse if I'm single? All right? And we get some clarity in two different places here in our passage. First of all, verses 8-9, through nine, but also verses 36-38. through 38, Because in both places, Paul sort of stops, doesn't he? To address specific audiences. He says, okay, to you people, I'm going to say this. To you people, I'm going to say this. And we know he's getting specific here. To specific kinds of singles. Both sets of verses have their difficulty, so I want you to give me like three to five minutes of hard thinking. Alright? Just like... Three to five minutes, I'm putting on the thinking cap around. I'm going with you. We're going to get, we're going to think hard. 
I'm not just going to be amused, that sort of thing. Okay, ready? Here we go. First of all, verses 8 through 9. Read these with me again, if you will. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they can't exercise self-control, they should marry. It's better to marry than be aflame with passion. To the unmarried, Paul says here, which is a, a big category, right? That's a massive category. But then he adds in widows. So he says, to the unmarried and also to the widows, who are just like a segment of the population of unmarried, right? Amongst the unmarried, here this is a small percentage, let's say 4% widows, which is kind of odd, right? Why would Paul say to all you unmarried and also widows? It's strange. Why would he toss that in there? Well, every culture back then had a word for widow. Had a word in their language for widow, but few cultures had a word for widowers. This is in part because men outlived women by an average of 15 years because of death by childbirth. It was just a lot more common. If you were the one to bear children, you died a lot more in ancient culture. It's just, it's just, it's just a fact. I don't mean that callously. So you're looking at mid-20s versus early 40s. Mid-20s for women on average, early 40s for men on average. And so while Greek had a word for widower, it was never used in first century what we call biblical or koine Greek literature. In all kinds of literature. So, we have this word, opposite widows, all right, which is translated here, unmarried, but it's plural and masculine, right next to widows. Right? I believe, therefore, it's actually Paul is referring to here, because it doesn't translate well as unmarried, widowers. There's simply not a great known word for it. But it's masculine, right next to widows who we know are female. Female people whose husbands have died. So I think what Paul is really saying here is widows and widowers. To you, this category, I say, look, if you can't exercise self-control and you have a relationship, better to get married than burn a flame with passion. Now, how many of you here are widows or widowers? Wait, raise your hand. Okay. Literally, I, I don't want to point that person out. There was one. One. So very few of us. Certainly it applies to you. God bless you. But just because you didn't raise your hand doesn't mean Paul is not addressing you. He might very well be. In fact, see, when you seriously study a passage, after looking at the passage itself, then you'll want to look at its context and its audience. Then it's appropriate to study what we call the authorial intent. That is, the author's intent. The way we'd say that now in plain English is the spirit behind what someone says. You ever said that before? We talk about a law, and sometimes people try to apply that law so stringently, and we'll say, wait a minute, but that's not the spirit behind the law. I remember this happened to me one time at Cafe Del Sol, where I was sitting at one of their private benches that said, don't sit here unless you're using the computer for personal use. All right? There was like eight to ten open computers. No one was sitting at one, so I sat down at one, because I knew that the spirit behind that rule was leave it open for people to use, but there were eight to ten open. I still got reprimanded by the staff. It's okay, I'm all right. But, but that's the idea here. What's the spirit behind the rule? I clearly violated it. But what's the spirit? And I think the spirit behind what Paul is saying is this. To try to break it down very simply is those who have already experienced marital intimacy like widows and widowers. And so it's difficult for them to live without it again. Go ahead and get married. You have a relationship. It's difficult. You've already experienced the fruit of sexual intimacy through marriage, go ahead and get married again because it's difficult now to live without it. Does that make sense? 
That's the spirit of what Paul said. So it can broaden more into our lives a little. Okay, now, here's the other way Paul addresses singles here, specifically about whether it's time to seek a spouse or wait. Verses 36-38. If anyone thinks he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, I know it doesn't get easier, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them get married, it is no sin. Okay, it doesn't necessarily get easier here, but firstly let's address who is a betrothed. A betrothed is very much like being engaged in the first century, except much, much, much more serious. Okay, but, but still similar. Getting betrothed back then was like a legal act. It was saying, will you marry me? Now let's sign a contract. All right, so it's like, I do. Okay, put your I do down, both of us. It's not a prenup per se, but that might be the closest equivalent. Uh, it was a legal act. Thus, the two betrothed must legally separate to end the engagement or betrothal. So today, when someone wants to break the engagement, they just say, hey, dude, here's your ring, right? Ding! Or, uh, or, hey, can I have my ring back? It's my grandmother's. I don't think we're right. right. These sorts of things, right? That's how you break the engagement. Then it was like, let's sign another contract, or let's, pa- let's pass between two halves of animals back then in Hebrew culture, something like that. It was, very, it was legal. It also lasted for 12 months. Engagement, but a little more serious. Now, we know who betrothed are. Now, if you read the ESV translation, as we did this morning, you'll see that Paul is addressing singles who are betrothed, who've reached the height of their passions, and they can no longer keep their hands off. All right? They're, they're, de- they're, they're with this woman. They're enjoying this relationship. It's just gotten to the point where they're like, Hensy, I want to I be with you. I want to touch you, hold you, kiss you, all those things, right? You want that. But if you have an NIV translation, this is where it gets a little complicated, keep thinking with me here. Paul seems to be addressing engaged men whose betrothed have reached the height of fertility. And so he'll read, if you have an NIV translation, if she is getting along in age, then consider, you know, go ahead and getting married. Or the, the New American Standard, if she is full of years, which is a nice way of basically saying um, she's reached the height of fertility. Like, this is the time when she can still have kids, she can bear children, a big deal for a lot of women both then and still now. Okay, massive difference, right? Either the height of my passion, and I just got to get my hands on this gal, I love her, I want to touch her, that's a good thing, God created that for marriage. Or the height of fertility to bear children. It hinges on this word, hooperachmos, which basically means highest or culminating point, from which we get hyper, Right? the high point of someone's activity. That could either mean passion sexual activity or childbearing activity. Either one. I think Paul uses the strategy he occasionally uses elsewhere in the New Testament. He has this little trick he often uses, which every once in a while, he'll utilize words that can mean purposely two different things. And I think that might be the case here. And so I interpret it as such. So the spirit of what Paul is saying here is this, and I've written it up here on the screen. The man who can no longer keep his hands to himself and the man whose betrothed has come to the height of fertility and it's just not right to keep stringing her along, all right? In both cases, it's okay to get married. Height of passion, height of fertility, not good to string her along any longer because this is her childbearing age. It's okay to get married. Make sense? These are three cases, all right? People who've enjoyed marriage in the past, 
enjoying all, all the benefits they're in, including sexual intimacy and having a hard time. You have people who, uh, you know, are in a serious monogamous relationship but can't keep their hands off engaged any longer or their person they're dating. And finally, you have people who, you know, you're in a relationship and you're kind of stringing this person along through their fertile years, their years they can actually have kids. It's not right to keep dragging your feet for their sake. Now, I'm going to try to help us even more simply conceptualize this because this is not easy. So I have drawn a fun graph for us. That's right. Or, or really, it's a, not a graph. It's a, it's a circle. I've drawn what I call the God-pleasing and spouse-seeking circle. All right? This is an area we want to be in. If you're in the circle, it's pleasing to God because God has been so good through us through Christ. We want to please him with our lives, our calling, our bodies, our, potentially our marriage or our singleness. So here we go. You'll see in the middle of these two circles, these two relational callings in life. Single and content, married and content. It's like two eyes in the middle of the circle, all right? For those of you who are listening. <laughs> inside this large circle, moving a little bit more outwards, but still inside the circle, is a God-pleasing limbo. These are what we've, we've covered so far. So for example, you've previously experienced marital intimacy, but now you're burning in a new relationship you see the arrow of action that Paul counsels. He says, go ahead and get married. Watch that up on the screen. Isn't that fun? Go ahead, get married. All right? What about, Paul, a long-term monogamous relationship, and I can't keep my hands off this woman any longer? Paul says, go ahead. It's okay. Get married. Get married so you can enjoy your, the wife of your youth, as Proverbs says. All right? And, and enjoy your husband of your youth as well. Go ahead. Get married. Long, Paul, but what about, I'm in a long-term monogamous relationship, and, you know, my, this guy I'm dating, he's kind of stringing me along. I want to have kids. I want to start a family. What's up? He said, you know what? I addressed that right here in 1 Corinthians 7. Go ahead. Talk about marriage. Go ahead and get married. To do otherwise would be selfish. To go ahead and get married. Now, all this is important because of what's outside the circle. And this would be situations for which Paul does not provide marital allowance. He does not say, oh, it is good to get married in these situations. And this is why this is so important. Because there are a lot of things that Paul is not saying here about, well, you better go ahead and get married. Number one, you've been hooking up on the reg with others all right, in your life. And now you're convicted that it's wrong. God has finally convicted you. It's not okay just to go out, get your groove swerve on with the opposite gender. At time, you know, just go out for the purpose of, I want to date this person so eventually I can kind of, you know, get with them. Now I'm convicted. This is what I also call the mom's advice sphere, which is find a good girl and settle down, honey. That's really what you just need to do. Actually, it's unwise coming off those kinds of relationships with others to make marriage the next step. I would say it is unwise. The next step is to get single and get content. The next step is to ask people in your church, in your community group, guys, you know, I, I've been convicted about my dating habits, my relationships with the opposite gender or gals. You know, I, I feel like I've been giving in on these Friday nights and Saturday nights and I need help. Go there first. Ask people to pray for you, to help you 
Be more content with your relationship with Jesus and being single before you think about marriage. We'll see why in a second. Because if you go into marriage coming off these getting your groove swerve on with whoever kind of comes your way relationships, your marriage will be a disaster. All right? Here's the second kind of thing we find outside the circle. You're struggling with self-centered sexual expression. You're struggling with self-centered sexual expression. You're dealing with lust. The idea here would be primarily pornography. Right, that's, a, that's a problem in your life. And because you're dealing with lust, people might say, well, then you, you should just find a, a wife and get married. That is the solution to lust and to pornography. It is not. It is not. That is not the next step. It just, again, will lead to disaster. It's wiser to get single and get content in your relationship with God. Ask again for help from a band of brothers or a band of sisters. Here's a third reason people often say, oh, well, I should just get married. Is you're dating a non-Christian, you've been dating for a while, but we love each other. But we love each other, so we really should get married. It's the right thing to do. <clears throat> Not the right thing to do. We know this from, from, from what else biblical counsel has to say. Let me just read this to you. 2 Corinthians 6, 14-17. Do not be unequally yoked. Unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, light with darkness, Christ with Belial, which was a kind of expression for the demonic, really. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? That doesn't mean... By the way, that believers and unbelievers don't have relationships, but it's these sort of close-knit, intimately involved kinds of relationships that Paul is saying, don't do it. It will just drag you down. He goes on to say, God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them. So, if you're dating a non-Christian, even if you love each other, Paul says, get single and get content. Because that will not go well for you. Now listen, he has a different word for those of us who are in marital relationships with a non-Christian. He has a different and very encouraging word, Paul does. But for those of us who are dating non-Christian, it's not time to get married. It's time to get single and be content and make sure Jesus is your Lord and that you're yoked to Him because you love Him. Now let me say two things here. In conclusion about this circle, the God-pleasing and spouse-seeking circle, a common complaint when it comes to dating, engagement, marriage, and the Bible is that, hey, you know, my situation, my scenario isn't addressed by the Bible. What's up with that? To which I would say, that's our fault, not God's. That's our fault, not God's. We, we live in a world, a sinful world that has digressed, that has dilapidated, that has decayed. It's our fault, not God's, that we have all these new, twisted scenarios that don't match up with apostolic counsel, that don't match up with the Bible. So you're saying, well, what about if, I, if I'm dating this girl and we're, and we're sexting? Well, you know what? I'm just being very blunt with you guys. Or we're, we're video chatting in this intimate way that's only, you know, let me tell you guys, that's our fault, not God's. It's not God's fault that he doesn't address that in Scripture because that is the way our society has dilapidated and digressed right? Now, I, I hear you. Maybe you, you got that example from parents. We know that there's societal pressures and, and, and media influence, and then there's our past but forgiven sin. We have all these factors, but still, that's our issue, not God's. Here's the other thing I want to say about the God-pleasing, I'll seek and circle this paradigm. 
Singleness isn't simply a season. It's an opportunity to get single-minded about God as your only Savior and your highest passion. If you don't locate contentment and satisfaction in Jesus only and seek marriage instead as a remedy and fulfillment for you, you'll have a marriage that is characterized by one or two things. Frustration or infidelity. Frustration because you'll try to get from your spouse what only God can give you. Infidelity because you seek additional partners just as you sought additional gods to Jesus. One will never be enough. This frustration idea, I've I've shared with you previously what I once heard two old men at a filling station once say. I once heard them say, you know, marriage is like two ticks and no dog. They're like two people coming together. And there should be a way that both of them should be satisfied in marriage, but there's no dog. No offense to dogs, though you'll have canines, but, but they're supposed to be the host in this analogy. They're like two ticks trying to get life from each other. Doesn't work. There needs to be a third party. That's why there's Jesus. That's why there's Jesus. When you, try, when you derive your life from the vine, from a relationship with Jesus, you always have resources in marriage to give, not get. To minister, not manipulate. Because you get your life from the vine. You get your sense of self-worth, of satisfaction, of joy. You're defined by being part of the vine. Infidelity. I'm telling you, you'll immediately satisfy your physical passions have become your God. There's no way a partner can live up to that. They can't perform like a person you've just met or like the paid professionals of pornography. All right? So if you go into marriage thinking, this will be my solution because I have so many passions in my life, no one can live up to that. Certainly no one person. And so that's when infidelity starts to creep in. So get single, get content if that's you. In fact, actually, here's our third point this morning. There ought to be a single-mindedness about all of us. That's the essence of what Paul is writing in verses 29 through 31. Let me start, though, in verse 26 here where he says this, look, I think in view of the present distress, then he goes on in verse 29, the appointed time has grown short. Verse 31, the present form of this world is passing away. What is Paul trying to say here? He's trying to give reasons why we should all be single-minded. Why should we? First, he says in view of this present distress. He doesn't mean the end times are, are nigh or there's this particular oppressive government like Nero here. He simply means because the good news has come, so judgment and salvation. Here is the long-awaited way through Jesus. So there's no longer an excuse. There's no longer a waiting, a vague, what's God going to do to save us all? It's all here in Jesus Christ. All then are suffering either for the gospel or without the gospel. So it's time to get serious about the gospel either way. And that's why we need to be single-minded. Most of our our existence is going to be actually unmarried to an earthly spouse and married to Jesus. Jesus makes this clear himself in Mark 12, Matthew 22. Eternity instead reads like this, Revelation 19. The marriage of the Lamb has come. The bride has made herself ready. We'll all eat the marriage supper of the Lamb as the bride to the bridegroom. The present form of this world is passing away. In other words, because of all this, because it should be all about those of us who are suffering for the gospel or without the gospel, we've got to get serious and single-minded with our lives. So really, Paul is just applying 
Jesus' Matthew 33 principle, or sorry, uh, Jesus' Matthew 6.33 principle. Anybody remember that verse? Matthew 6.33. Seek first his what? His kingdom and his righteousness. Then all these things will be given to you. And that's the way it's supposed to work. When we first seek the king of kings, you can enjoy marriage without letting it define you. Verse 29. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Usually we think of Matthew 6.33 in terms of providing basic necessities, food, clothing, that sort of thing. But God also provides relationally when we make him our highest passion and our single aim. Seek him out for his patience. As you seek, you see the amazing patience he shows towards you even when you've sinned the third, fourth, fifth, sixth times in the same way in the same day. Helps you be patient not only to your spouse but towards everyone. When you go to Him for forgiveness, right, it helps you more quickly forgive and overlook the sins of your spouse, the things that annoy you and the ways they offend you and towards all others. It's an overflow into the, all of life and all of your calling. You can experience extremes of emotion without letting them master you. Look at verse 30. Those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing which would seem strange unless Paul was saying, look, by just being singly focused on the King of Kings, you can experience both extremes of emotions, but they never master you. When you seek the King for gospel truth and gospel promises, those harness emotions and redirect them for good. So for example, you can mourn over sin that you've committed. You can mourn over idolatry that still grips your friends' hearts and is destroying their lives. They can do so in a way that's directed towards the King of Kings and with the hope that the Gospel can change them and you. The hope of the Gospel can change lives like that. So you can experience emotions and have them redirected. You can buy, sell, wheel and deal, acquire and lease without letting anything possess you. Verses 30-31. through 31. Look at that. Those who buy as though they had no goods. Those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. It's the idea that as you you seek Him to provide all your needs, you can join with God in the adventure of generosity by regularly, habitually giving back to a generous king. You can trust He's going to give you everything else as well. The idea is, again, make it simple. Seek the king, and he will provide everything else for every sphere of life, whether you're single or you're married. So you can live as though marriage isn't the most important thing to you because it shouldn't be. You can live as if goods and services and contracts and your job isn't the most important thing. Because it, it shouldn't be. You can still enjoy it. You can live as though emotions, you can experience them, but they don't master you because they never should. You have one master. There's no season like singleness that trains us to get single-minded about King Jesus, our only Savior and highest passion. So Paul can conclude, in light of this present distress, people suffering either for the gospel or without it, he who marries does well, and he refrains, does even better. In addition to just asking my single friends these last couple weeks who, you know, their experience of singleness, they helped really bless this message. Did a lot of informed reading on seasonal and lifelong calling to singleness. And I came across a May 2014 article called, Should I Be Content with My Singleness? It was written by a then 33-year-old woman named Betsy Childs, who is the web and publishing editor at Beeson Divinity School in Alabama. She makes a brilliant biblical case for why it is so good to make Jesus your highest passion 
how you can do that in a way you can't do it any other way in singleness. So as she did that, I searched her name. And out popped another article she wrote nearly a year later, which was titled, One Day He Appeared. So I was like, oh, okay, that's curious. Jesus hasn't come back. So it can't be, she can't be referring to Jesus appearing. <laughs> so uh, a day after writing the first article that she wrote, a man thanked her in the comment section of her article. She wrote back to this man, and they started to correspond. He's a Jewish Christian, originally from London. After exchanging emails, they agreed to Skype. And it went so well that, she said, quote, he asked in his elegant British accent if he could fly down to Alabama and take me on a date. Lo and behold, in two weeks, they're going to get married. Now, here's what she says about this whole experience. Writing this article, putting herself out there publicly, and then a year later writing this other article about finding this man. She says, mission accomplished, right? Wrong. Marriage was not the object of my article, and singleness wasn't a problem to be solved. The object of my life is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Singleness gave me opportunities to live for God's glory and enjoy Him in ways I could not otherwise. So to my single friends, be encouraged by that last thought. Your singleness, whether it's seasonal or lifelong, is a calling to live singly for God's glory and enjoy Him in ways that you could not otherwise. Let's pray. This is Your holy Word, God. And we're grateful for it. One of the things we see here that Paul is so strongly trying to advocate is that marriage is not mission accomplished. And we're so tempted to think that. Those of us who are married and unmarried. For those of us who are married, help us not think that just having a good marriage, having a relatively happy marriage means mission accomplished. If we're not seeking the King of Kings, and letting that overflow, that, that love, that unconditional love overflow, not only to our marriage, but all of our lives, through sharing the gospel with others, through living gospel-centered lives, that it is certainly not mission accomplished. For those of us who are single, help us not buy into the lie that marriage will be mission accomplished. It is not. It is not. I pray that my friends here who are single would, would be encouraged at getting single-minded about you through the gospel and for the gospel. That is the mission, whether married or unmarried. Help us, Jesus. Focus on you. Get single-minded about you. Make you our highest passion, our greatest aim, our Lord of lords, and that that passion would overflow into the spheres of our calling and our gifting. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.